Hey, friends. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like a dying rooster there. Uh, Greg Kokel here, your host. And, and yeah, that was my voice making the dying rooster sound. I did that many years ago. I don't have time to tell the story now. I've told it a number of times on the air. But uh, I do want to bring you up to date on some things that are happening. And I've not been so good about letting people know where we're going to be around the country doing different things. So uh, I'm going to run down a number of things that are happening and uh, different speakers from STR in different locations in the next couple of weeks. Now, the first thing, of course, tonight, if you're receiving this first thing Friday is when we send this out. Uh, tonight, we're in Augusta, Georgia, and uh, we're doing our final of our six-city series on, uh, on reality. And this is the um, chaos to clarity um, season, as it were. And uh, we've already been kind of, you know, boxing the globe, I mean, the boxing the compass a bit here, starting in Southern California, going up to Seattle and Minneapolis, uh, then down to Dallas, then uh, over to Philly, and then down to Augusta. So we're trying to have representative um, cities uh, geographically located for our reality. And so that's starting as kind of as we speak. And uh, last count was around 600, plenty of uh, room for walk-ons, as it turns out. This is the first time we've done um, anything in Augusta. So, uh, you know, we're, we're building up speed, and, um, and this is our first shot. So we're looking forward to that. And, and if you're in that area within striking distance, I encourage you, this is a great event. Uh, we've had virtually sell out every place we've gone so far. So uh, also, um, John Noyes uh, will be live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube on Wednesday. That would be April 27th at 12 p.m. Uh, PST or PDT, whatever, Pacific time. All right. And his show is called To The Point Live. And uh, if you go to str.org and scroll down to the bottom for links, uh, you'll find our social media channels. OK, but that's 12 p.m. on the 27th. John Noyes. I don't know what his topic is. He just did a thing on Hillsong, apparently, and uh, was very well received. We got a lot of good responses about that. Uh, he'll also be speaking at Main Street Church in Chilliwack, B.C., Canada. Chilliwack. I don't even know. Well, that's B.C., right? <laughs> in Canada on Saturday, April 30th and Sunday, May 1st. Okay, so if you're in that neck of the woods, um, check out Main Street Church in Chilliwack. Alan Schleeman will talk about how to be an ambassador for Christ at Broadway Christian Church. That's Mattoon, Illinois, and that'll be Sunday, May 1st. And I'm going to uh, be speaking at Community Bible Church in Brighton, Michigan. I'll be talking about the story of reality on Sunday, May 1st, I'm also giving a Friday evening, or make that a Saturday evening Q&A. Uh, when I get there Saturday afternoon, I'll do a special evening service, and then we'll do the Sunday uh, services there at uh, Community Bible Church in Brighton, B-R-I-G-H-T-O-N, Michigan, Sunday, May 1st. And then uh, Alan Schleeman is going to be doing a live Q&A video on Instagram Wednesday, May 4th at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. Uh, Tim Barnett. We'll be at Westside Church in Omaha, Nebraska on Friday, May 6th and Saturday, May 7th. I don't know what the topics are. Um, and Amy Hall will be doing a live Q&A on Facebook on Wednesday, May 18th at 1 p.m. So uh, that's the skinny there. And I'll for some of the later events, I'll repeat that as time comes up. But uh, hopefully you'll be able to benefit uh, from participating there. All right, so let's go back to your, our callers, and I think next on board is uh, Ryan, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hello, Ryan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Greg. 
Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Is Ann Arbor, like, I I went to Michigan State University, so I lived in East Lansing, but um, Brighton is around, I know Ann Arbor is closer to Detroit, and Brighton, I think, is a little east of Detroit, so maybe Brighton is close to Ann Arbor. What do you think? I was actually uh, Google mapping that when you said that, and it's about 25 minutes from me, so oh, I might okay. have to swing by when you come. Yeah, okay. It's Saturday night, the last Saturday of the month, and then Sunday, May 1st. Saturday night, Q&A at 6 as far as I understand, and then I'll be doing um, I'll be doing talks on Sunday in the morning. Excellent. Um, well, I just want to first off, before I get to my question, I want to say a big thank you um, to you guys. Um, I'm actually I work with Campus Crusade for Christ mm-hmm. up here at the University of Michigan. So okay. my wife and I are, are missionaries up here, and uh, good for you. Your guys's work. Have uh, has really helped us and our students. So I just want to say thank you. Well, you're it. so I'm so glad to hear that you're so you're so welcome, and I'm so glad to hear it, especially coming from a crew person because to me, crew is kind of drifting around a little bit in some ways. You know, I agree. I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm just glad to hear that. I'm I'm not here to diss crew, but I'm just I'm mm-hmm. glad you're serving in that way in a tough environment. And at U of M, I mean, uh, M go blue. I mean, it's a big school. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's it's a lot of bright people that go to school there, and uh, it's got to be challenging. So um, I'm glad that we're able to help you out. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I'll just give you a little bit of context before I get to my question. Um, my question has to do with the historical Adam and Eve. Okay. Um, I recently, um, what got me thinking about this, I, I recently listened to a, a podcast where uh, Stephen Meyer was talking about uh, the historical Adam. Right. Um, and he, what he said was very encouraging to me. Um, he said that uh, for a long time, the, the genetics um, didn't necessarily support the idea of an original human pair, but that now uh, the genetics coming out are telling a very different story, and that, um, in his view, um, that it looks like it's entirely possible that there was a historical Adam, uh-huh. um, even just looking at the genetics. Right. Um, and then I also listened to a podcast, um, Dr. Fuzrana over at... Um, Reasons to Believe. believe. Right. And uh, he seems to hold a very similar view to Dr. Meyer. Um, he thinks that mainstream science has in no way um, invalidated the idea of there being an original modern human pair. Right. Uh, but then he gave an in-depth review of um, Dr. William Lane Craig's new book, which I think is called In the Quest for the Historical Adam. That's correct. Um, and so Dr. Rana essentially explained how um, in this, this new book kind of approaches this, talk, this topic from a more... Um, evolutionary framework, yeah. in a way, um, and how the book essentially argues that, I haven't been able to read the book yet, but uh, what Dr. Rana said was the book um, essentially argues that the best uh, evidence, genetic evidence, etc., that we have actually doesn't support the idea of a modern human pair, but rather uh, would push us further back um, and and needing to accept, on some level, as I understand it, some form of human evolution. And so, my initial question to you, um, as I was just trying to think through that, is do you think that there is still a, a scientific case that can be made for Adam and Eve being like an original human pair? Um, as as, as uh, Dr. Meyer said, I, I wasn't sure how to sure sure. Parts. Just to be clear, were you saying that now Fuzrana is saying that it is not clear genetically that there was an original human pair? Is that what Dr. Oh, Rana said? I'm, no, I'm sorry. So he agrees with Dr. Meyer. They I got it. Okay, and Bill Craig disagrees with them. From what I understand uh, from his review of the book. Okay, well, I know every one of these guys, okay, and I've known them okay. all for a long time. And so yeah, I look I, up to all of them myself. And, so. and, and, I, um, 
and I, you know, this is more their field, obviously, than mine. Sure. And so I'm going to try to draw on their information. And uh, the work that the Discovery Institute is doing, which Stephen Meyer represents, and also RTB reasons to believe that uh, Fazrana mm-hmm. is part of, okay, they're doing fabulous work. And I actually have a number of pieces in the queue right now for me to read that has to do with the historical atoms that Stephen Meyer oh, okay. hasn't written, but is it Casey Luskin? Does that sound right, Amy? Maybe Casey Luskin from the 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 uh, Discovery Institute has done in responding to these issues, and especially in responding to William Lane Craig's uh, approach, generalized approach regarding um, re- regarding the historical atom. And uh, I actually listened in the last last couple of years in the fall. They have an event called Evangelical Theological Society, ETS, and Evangelical Philosophical Society, EPS, that meet conjointly. And in um, on, uh, in in San Diego in 19, uh, before they had all the problem with COVID, uh, I sat in on a lecture where Stephen Meyer was there with, with Paul Nelson, and also Bill Craig was making a presentation on this issue. And then just recently, uh, in November, I sat in on a long discussion that a number of people had with Bill Craig there about this particular book. You know, so I've got I've got a bit of an educated opinion about this. Let me just say um, a couple of things. My sense from what I've heard from uh, Meyer, I haven't talked to Fazrana on on this, but I know a little bit about where they've come from in the past and how at least what RTB had promoted was the idea that mitochondrial DNA, which is a very unique kind of strain of this assessment, um, Mm -hmm. uh, very strongly points back to an original Eve, mitochondrial Eve, they say. Now, I don't know the details of that, but I know this is something they pointed to. And, um, and but broadly, the, Strictly speaking, the 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 science is still out on this. The I should say the jury is still out on on the science related to this. And what what you're going to see happening here in this issue is you're going to see people gravitate, given ambiguous scientific evidence, gravitate towards the point of view that favors their view. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now and so therefore, uh, anything that kind of hints of a, a DNA scenario that excludes an original Adam and Eve, this is going to be a satisfying direction for secular types to go, all right, mm-hmm. along with their general uh, approach uh, of Dar- Darwinian evolution to the development of, of humans, all right? So, and then when you have the the Christians who are taking this approach, and, not, and in this particular case, I'm going to just set Bill Craig aside for a moment, because I think he's a little bit unique. You're going to have people like Fazran and Stephen Meyer that are going to say, okay, well, w- this same evidence that is being interpreted this way by the secular crowd in science can also legitimately be interpreted in a different way that supports the biblical account, okay, mm-hmm. at least with regards to the original human pair. And so they're going to lean that way. Now, there's a reason they're going to lean that way. Actually, there's a reason that both lean both directions, and that is that uh, they, they, they have a prior world view that they have convictions about and commitments to. Now, I'm not saying that in, in this situation, in this thing we're talking about right now, I'm not saying that anybody's cheating. I'm just saying that when there are nebulous conclusions to be drawn 
from the evidence, it's natural for people to follow the interpretation that is legitimate in their mind that supports their view. Here's the key difference for me with regards to the Christian view and the science. As long as the science does not categorically eliminate the biblical option, we're safe. And there is no evidence that that's the case, that it has categorically eliminated the biblical option. But there are some, there's, another, there's another problem that's, that's in play here, okay, and, uh, or concern. And I'm going to go back to 2019 in San Diego in this panel discussion where there were theistic evolutionists on one side of the panel. There were, were, were intelligent design old earth creationists on the other, and that would be Stephen Meyer and uh, Paul Nelson in that case. And right in the middle was Bill Craig. And Bill Craig wasn't really weighing in on either side at that time, 2019. He hadn't finished his book yet. But he was, he was, he was experimenting with different ideas, okay? And he, he does that. That's fine, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but what he said then, if the Darwinian model is not tenable on its merits, on the scientific merits, then the theistic evolution option is off the table. He was looking more theologically, and this, that, and the other thing is possibility, the theistic evolutionists, okay? Maybe, this, maybe yes, maybe no. But if the Darwinian project itself is not sound, then the theistic evolution is off the table because evolution is off the table. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So here's what's interesting about that particular conversation, and that is that, that the theistic evolution guys started first and kind of, kind of gave their view. Uh, this is the BioLogos crowd. And then Bill Craig gave his view, which wasn't meant to weigh in on either side, but he was giving different things to think about, but he did make this statement. If the Darwinian model is not sound, then you can't, then the theistic evolution is off the table. And then you have Paul Nelson and Stephen Meyer get up. And in my view, they eviscerated the Darwinian model. They just eviscerated it. These guys are so smart. They know so many things, and they just show this. It just ain't going to work. So now, in a certain sense, if the Darwinian model doesn't work, this throws into question all of the conclusions. In other words, it doesn't work on its own merits. When you see, here's how the model is supposed to work, and let's see the evidence that it is working and has worked in that way. And it turns out the entire establishment, scientific establishment, is moving away from the classical neo-Darwinian point of view. And, uh, well, if you're moving away from it, why do that? Because it's not working. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you're not going to read about that in the New York Times, and you're not going to read about it in the National Geographic, and, uh, you know, the standard crowd that are popularizing these things are not going to admit it. But Meyer, traffic, and, and, and the whole intelligent design crowd, and this would include Fuzrana and uh, Hugh Ross, they're a different strain of the ID, but in any event, they, all, they traffic with the smart guys the latest research, and they know the liabilities. And so um, it's, it, it, Stephen has a new book, well, it just came out four or five months ago. I had him on the air here, and it's called The, re, the, the uh, Return of the God Hypothesis. And I asked him, why the return? He says, because the God Hypothesis has always been in play until, until Darwin. And then Darwin took the God Hypothesis out of play with its scientific assessment, quote-unquote, and now we realize that science doesn't work the way 
it allegedly worked, and the scientific evidence we have now for the origin of the universe and for the design, uh, intricate design of the, the cell and DNA and the double helix and all of that, all of this now invades in favor of an intelligent designer. And, uh, and so now we have good scientific reasons to believe in the intelligent design or the design hypothesis. And, uh, and of course, he, he, Stephen knows his stuff in this, and he plays those cards so expertly. Um, and even in the face of what for us would be withering opposition, even from other Christians. I mean, the last time I talked to him, he, he mentioned to me that, that the objections and the pushback that he's getting now is more from Christians than from non-Christians. You know, that, that would be the biologos crowd and the theistic evolution crowd. So, um, okay, so that's kind of a, a broad-based assessment. If you look at the genetics, it, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the jury is still out, which means that the biblical option is still in play. But if you look at the Darwinian model that, that the genetics is meant to serve, well, that model is on its way out. And if the model itself is not a good one, then what are you going to do with the genetics? I mean, you can't just have genetics say that Darwinism must be true, because what we have now in genetics is a residue, is what appears to be a residue of D- Darwinian evolution. This is the, 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 the DNA material now in the present is the residue of this process. But if we have no good reason to believe that the process actually took place, apart from what's suggested by the residue in the DNA, well, then that raises questions about how we're interpreting the residue, the DNA. And if it's possible to interpret that in a way that's consistent with a biblical model, well, then there's no reason not to do that. And so this brings me finally to Bill Craig and this search for the historical Adam. And uh, he, he concluded, first of all, that, and I'm glad he, he works in this order, that theologically you have to have an original pair of image-bearing human beings. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I say image-bearing human beings is because a lot of these terms are very flexible. What does it mean? What's a homo sapien? What's a, what's the, what's a hominid? What, what, is a, what is a human being? And so he's just clarifying. The biblical pair, the first pair of all humanity that fell from moral innocence, were the first pair made in the image of God. That doesn't mean there couldn't have been those that came before them that were part of a, of a in principle, a evolutionary uh, development to reach this couple that God then imbued with a soul that had his image, in, in, you know, built into it, and they became the 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 uh, pair who was the parents of all the rest of the human race. So Bill is hanging on to an historical Adam and Eve in in some theologically meaningful sense, but that doesn't mean that these were the first intelligent hominids that were created. There could have been others, and there probably were not what we would call human, maybe, depending on how you defined it. Um, and then he is, seemed to be very sympathetic to the Darwinian model, although I'd asked him a question directly during this discussion in November in Dallas, or in Fort Worth, actually. Did, did, he, um, did, did, did he hold to a theistic evolution point of view, which his view in the book is friendly to? He doesn't assert it, but it's friendly to it. Um, and he begged off, okay? 
and uh, that which is all right. I, I I told him I didn't want to put him on the spot, but if he feels comfortable share, showing his hand, would he do that? And he 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 begged off and said, I was really trying to accomplish something else with the book and just show what the possibilities are rather than weighing in directly on what actually took place. Now, since then, he's made some other comments and I don't see Amy right now, so I can't, I can't appeal to her, but I think, Oh, did, do you know, it it seems to me like within the last month or two, we've, I've seen some writing, Amy, that is about Bill Craig weighing in specifically whether he agrees with Darwinian evolution or not. And I can't recall what the result, it was a brief, it was a small thing, but it, she's, she can't recall either, so she's scrunching her head. So he's recently said something that uh, he weighed in more definitively about that. But for the, for the sake of our discussion, let's just say he's, he's just saying that is certainly uh, there's a plausible scenario where you can have a Darwinian evolution of hominid types that historically ends up with a couple that we call Adam and Eve, who are the first couple that are made the image of God. And then from them come all humanity. Mm-hmm. And that original pair also fell morally, and so this is why all humanity following them are fallen as well. So it's kind of an interesting amalgam for Bill that he wants, certainly, and I was so glad to hear that he comes out very strongly in favor of an original Adam and Eve pair. But, uh, uh, you know, but he is, how did you get that pair there? Uh, Swami Das, for example, another guy who's done a lot of work here, has a point of view that uh, has to do with, that affirms uh, other hominid creatures that developed into what we now call man and uh, st- and still have sign of, a, you know, an, uh, an Adam and Eve theological sense. I, you know, there's just a lot of ideas floating around. Amy's on board now. Did you want to... Um, Oh, okay. Okay. So uh, we don't have a definitive answer, but it's a short piece. And I just, golly, how could I forget? I watched it, but I can't remember what he said. And this is really significant. You know, it's really great, though, um, that, uh, Ryan, that you are um, kind of pursuing this and asking questions about it, Mm because this is, I know this is, I mean, I've been asked questions on campus about this issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably the safest way to go apologetically right now is, to be fair, the science is still out. Mm-hmm. But there is no definitive science that disqualifies an original human pair, human pair. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, if I, if you don't mind, so in your view, um, would you, even with the evidence still being a bit in flux, would you still favor, based off of what we do know uh, of there being uh, something like what Dr. Meyer said, like an original modern human pair, and not? A more hominid. Correct. Uh, in other words, a, home, a human being, in the sense that we normally speak of, it, is always the same. So mm-hmm. there's a nature that is a human nature, and it bears God's image, and uh, and and those are of a kind. It isn't mm-hmm. like this rainbow flow from millions of years ago, and then we flow, and that's what evolution does. There is no fixed anything in evolution. Everything is just at some stage of change. But in our, in our view, humans have a nature. Mm-hmm. It's human nature. And um, it is, we are a fixed kind of thing, and have been from the very beginning. And I think something like the biblical account in Genesis 2 and 3 is an accurate historical characterization of it. Bill calls this um, 
uh, uh, historical mythicism or something like that. And he's, he's trying to be very nuanced, and I understand his approach there, but I, I just don't agree with the view. Because mm-hmm. virtually everything that characterizes his, uh, uh, historical mythicism, and maybe I'm not using the right terminology here, but you know what I'm referring mm-hmm. to from his book. Virtually, I, I had, had a list, and maybe I still got it in my drawer here. I don't know. Virtually everything on that list is an ex- it can be is it is characteristic of almost everything in the Pentateuch, you know. Mm-hmm. So you right. can't you can't just dismiss it as being historical because of these characteristics of a mythical historical kind of thing, because that would dismiss the entire Pentateuch. I I do not mm-hmm. see any good reason like talking snakes. I mean, this seems obviously to build to build to be a mythic characterization. Why? I, I don't understand that snakes don't talk. Well, and, and people don't rise from the dead either, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the, we live in a supernatural world in which supernatural things happen. And there are two sides to the supernatural. There's God and the devil. So that the snake could talk, is, I don't have any problem with that. Just like Balaam's donkey can talk, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. that's a miracle. <laughs> it's out of the ordinary. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's yeah. mythical. So right. I, I don't accept I, that characterization. I'm, I'm much more conventional in this regard, and I do reject Darwinism writ broad uh, on the merits. I, I'm with Stephen yeah. Meyer on that one, definitely. Yeah, I I have uh, I have tremendous respect for Dr. Craig, um, and he's a hero for me. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know that I... Um, Fuzz Rana brought up several theological concerns he would have if it turned out that... Um, Instead of modern being modern humans, um, that the Adam and Eve were more of a, a different kind of yes. species. Yeah. Um, but so my yeah, I think you've answered my question, which is basically, um, is there still another scientifically viable option to mm-hmm. say like, oh no, the humans like we are today, it's still uh, scientifically possible that those were mm-hmm. the original parents. It sounds like you're saying yes to that. Yeah. So that. Yes, I, I think that's a, certainly a viable option. And even if you got most scientists don't believe that, well, then the question is, right. why do they choose this option rather than the other? And, and it's because they have prior commitments. Right. And that's, I'm not dissing them any more than I'm dissing Stephen Meyer or Fuzz Rahner to say that they have prior commitments. Right. Um, it, what mm-hmm. it shows is that the the uh, evidence is, is not decisive in the mm-hmm. DNA, but I do think the evidence is absolutely decisive with regards to the general theory of revolution, evolution, mm-hmm. rather, you know, the uh, the neo-Darwinian model. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's absolutely decisive, and, and it doesn't take a scientist to figure that out. Um, this is the right. great contribution I think that uh, Doug Axe has made um, in his uh, his book, Unbelievable, because y- 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 we have design intuitions. We know when something takes know-how to make it. We can mm-hmm. see that. And the entire natural world is filled with examples of such things. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, so I think we can trust our intuitions, yeah. even apart from the scientific information. Yeah. Well, my, my students, uh, I told my students I was calling you, and they love your work. So they said, let us, let us know where Greg's leaning. <laughs> so sounds like, so to give them a definitive answer for now, it sounds like you're leaning more towards um, a modern human and not the hominid. Correct. It, 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 okay. As long as modern human is it, is a characterization of a type of human or a type of creature, as opposed to as an era. Okay. So when modern human, so-called modern human, started, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I don't know. 
10,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago. And Bill Craig pushes it way back now, mm-hmm. you know, to uh, to what, he, what ancient, I don't know which, I can't remember the, not Swans Comey, not, anyway, but he's, he's uh, you know, he pushes it way back. And uh, yeah. so I, I don't know about that. I'm just totally agnostic about that. But uh, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Rana's last thing I'll say is Dr. Rana's view was um, he thought that the historical atom should probably be I think he called it like a Homo sapiens sapien. So uh-huh. uh, as as we are today, um, and he kind of seemed to exclude uh, wanting to uh, wanting Adam and Eve to even be uh, even if we classify as human, even being some sort of other you know, species. Right. Um, so is that, is that kind of where you land as well? Yeah, I, 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 I think what we are today is basically, in terms of our biological status, mm-hmm. what Adam and Eve were at the beginning. Okay. Okay, that's so what, I, I'm very much with yeah. Stephen Meyer on this, and, sure. uh, and Fuzz, it looks like, with, uh, with Fuzz and Hugh Ross, that whole crowd. I love those guys. Sure. I, that's uh, so. Me too. <laughs> All right, buddy, it's good talking Thank to you. you. All right. Yeah, I'll... Uh, I'll hopefully see you in uh, Brighton, but if not, I'll probably call in some other time. So oh, okay, sounds good. And Ryan, um, if if you do say hi to me, please remind me of our yeah. conversation because I sometimes lose track in my own mind. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Okay, thank bye. you, Greg. Uh, you're so welcome. Bye bye now. Bye. All right, so we're going to skip our breaks because we got people on board, and I want to just move to the next person. This is John and uh, Leander. Let me find your button here, John. Uh, John and Leander, Texas. Hello, John. Hey. I'm here. Yes, you are. You Thank me? you for your patience. You held over yeah, the last hey, this hour. is great. This is a real treat. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, by the way, I used to live in Buffalo Grove and moved no, to Leander kidding. about eight years ago. So, yeah, I know you're from Wheeling. or Well, I, 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 I actually live in Prospect Heights, which is right next door. But I went to school in Wheeling oh, okay. at Carl Sandburg uh, School and at uh, Walt Whitman School and then Jack gotcha. London Junior High. So I had all those yeah, Ameri- nice. great American writers <laughs> as the namesakes for the right. schools I went to. And I read them all, too. So Yeah, fantastic. So yeah, what's on your mind? Good to know. Yeah, um, yeah. I appreciate your ministry. Um, seems like lately I've heard a number of people talking about how they mm-hmm. love the Chosen, mm-hmm. which is uh, a series where it's kind of like a historical novel mm-hmm. where uh, some details are added which are not in scripture. Right, kind of. Uh, to embellish, you might say. Maybe that's a negative. Yeah, term. well, it's it's the kind of sanctified imagination. That's right. It's a, it's a life of Christ, yeah. but it's it, let's see. They just finished season two, and uh, there are like eight episodes. That would be eight hours per season. So we have sixteen hours right now of dramatized life of right. Christ, and they have just gotten to Matthew five, <laughs> which okay. is the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so okay. there are yeah. a number of seasons to go. So this is really stretched out. And so if you're looking at 20 or 30 hours of drama about Jesus, you're going to have to do a lot of creative writing. Yeah, it's like the ideal franchise that could go on forever, maybe. <laughs> well, it can't go well. Uh, yeah, I guess it wants it to go on forever. But, I mean, Jesus' only, his ministry is only three and a half years. So eventually you've got to kind of get to the end, unless you want to do acts then. But um, right. these guys are really stretching it out. So um, yeah. have, you have not seen it, though. Is that right? Or just saw you know, one episode? I, 
way back, I think a couple of years ago, I saw one, and uh, the episode I watched, they showed Peter and his brother-in-law, I guess the brother of the lady he married, Peter married, Yeah. and they got in a big fight, and Peter was all beat up. And uh, another one was where Nicodemus uh, somehow met Mary Magdalene. Yes. I mean, she was holed up in a house. Right. Anyhow. Uh, yeah, he was sent to. He was Nicodemus was sent to cast the demons out of her, and it turned yeah. out that Jesus ended up doing that at a different time. And so, right, uh, Nicodemus right. was not successful, but Jesus was. And that's yeah. It's this is part of the storyline that is part of the creativity of right. a, a drama like this. And everybody who does yeah. Life of Christ has to do that to some degree, except for isn't there a G, the G, the so called Jesus movie? Isn't that exactly yes. consistent like with a, the Gospel of Luke or something like that? Yeah, so they, Matthew or something. One right. of the it's larger Gospels. Yes, that's right. So, in other yeah. words, they don't they don't add anything to it. They just and there's another one I just saw a little bit of that was similar. I just turned it off because the acting was the production values are so poor. I wasn't interested in watching <laughs> it anymore. But that isn't the case right. in uh, the Chosen. So, uh, let me give you some feedback on the Chosen, and that is um, okay. I first learned about it because somebody that's part of our standard reason community sent me a, a disc and said these things are great here's the first you know maybe it was the first season i don't know but i ended up okay. watching the first episode or two and then just setting it aside for over a year and then we decided mm-hmm. to start watching it again it starts a little slow and it's really establishing the characters and this is why you have this right. relationships before jesus even shows up you have these relationships between these fishermen that end up becoming principals in the entire gospel story, okay, and Mary right. Magdalene and stuff, so there's a whole history that gets developed, Nicodemus shows up, and uh, and so these characters then continue on through the rest of the, uh, well, now it's the end of the second season, so I guess this has been about 16, 16 hours, and I just, Sunday, watched the end of the season that brought us to the point of Jesus doing the Sermon on the Mount, and um, okay. whenever you do a Life of Christ there's always going to be problems, it seems to me. And partly because you have big productions that are trying to satisfy a lot of people that are financially investing. And so generally it isn't one, you know, you know, Calvinist or whatever that, so you've got that, that is investing in it. And so it's going to reflect the one point of view you've got to make everybody happy. So you got to make the Catholics happy. You got to make the Protestants happy and you get all the different kind of players. So people watch the movie. And so that that's there's a fact that, that, that this is just what happens. I think one it, of the, it seems like that's a liability, though, isn't it? If you're trying to make everybody happy, uh, you're probably not going to end up with scripture. Well, what you're going to end up doing is just being is you can use the scripture, but you're just not going to emphasize aspects of it that are being going to be offensive. So look at you're not there's a there's a scene in the scripture where Mary. Jesus' mother comes with Jesus' brothers and sisters and calls for Jesus to come out of the house because they are concerned about Jesus' sanity is what it looks like. Okay? Now, you're not going to put that in a movie because that's going to really bug the Roman Catholics, right? Because that doesn't kind of fit with the narrative that they have. Jesus didn't have any brothers and sisters. He had only cousins because Mary was a perpetual virgin. Uh, on their doctrine. Right. So so things like that might be left out, but it doesn't mean the core isn't going to be good. I think that the Passion of the Christ was magnificent. 
and uh, and very, I, I think it was very creative and very um, uh, well produced. I also liked uh, Jesus of Nazareth, which, you know, it's like 40 years old now. And I think that uh-huh. particular characterization of Jesus, though sometimes was a little bit weird, other times there was just a magnificent characterization of certain episodes in Jesus' life. I just, it was very touching to see how how this actor and this these writers character you know took this event um uh-huh. and that we read in the text and i think brings tremendous significance to the events and in both of those cases the passion of the christ and uh and jesus of nazareth you have jesus that in some ways is just a little bigger than life okay there's a, there is okay. a transcendent element about him and they capture in the the actor's manner and jim caviezel was amazing i thought um, and, uh, and so, so I, now with that in mind, going to the chosen, the chosen, let me back up and, and, and give you some categories. There were, there, there, there's a, um, th- there are two ways of approaching the person of Christ and they, they, it, theologically it's called the, the, a, uh, theology, a Christology from below and a, a Christology from above. Okay. And the Christology from the below is Antiochian. And that means it's Eastern, more Eastern in, in the Eastern Church, and that emphasizes the humanity of Christ. Then you have the Alexandrian okay. school, which is the uh, which is which is uh, um, Christology from above. Hope I'm using my terms right. Uh, and they emphasize the divinity of Christ. So the Western Church emphasizes the deity of Christ, where the Eastern Church emphasizes more the humanity. It's just a matter of emphasis. They both believe in the two natures of Christ, but there's just a matter of emphasis. The chosen definitely is a Christology from below. It radically emphasizes the humanity of Christ. Now, of course, Jesus is the Son of God, etc., 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 Okay, but but there is a sense that in the way they made this film, where you get a, a very uh, I think um, rich sense that Jesus was a real human being, and so when you when okay. you see Jesus in this, and since there's so many episodes that you know it's moving slowly, there's a lot of time where Jesus is just camping out. He's an itinerant preacher, right? Where's he staying? He's really staying okay. on a tent. Making a yeah. fire, and then when okay. he gathers his people, they're all camping out, and they're doing their best to yeah. cook over a fire and whatever, and then walk, 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 and then come back and go to sleep and argue among themselves because there's all kinds of conflict between these guys, and that can, all this the, the apostolic band is forming here in the second season, and it's very interesting how they develop that. I love the writing of it. I mean, watching it from a, a writing perspective and, and them doing creative things with the interactions of the disciples and the different personalities that are involved and the in, inevitable conflicts they must have encountered given the, the, the variety of personalities. This, I think, is a huge benefit of this movie. So, by the way, I've watched all the, the episodes so far. The Chosen, correct. I've watched yes. all the okay. episodes so far, and I, I, I encourage people to watch it, because I think it will give you a sense of the humanness of Christ. But this has its liabilities, okay? And uh, the end of this season was troubling to me, because the okay. filmmakers made some decisions about how to characterize Christ that, you know, I did not feel comfortable with. Um, for example, so you have John the Baptist who proclaimed Christ uh, to the Jewish leaders, and he, the one is following after me whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. 
okay? Um, There's a sense of awe and reverence for this one who he then identifies as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But right. John, John and Jesus are cousins. And in one, in one movie, uh, a Jesus movie, you've got John the Baptist who's ready to baptize Jesus, and he's looking at Jesus and he's saying, somehow I know you. Somehow, I mean, of course you know me. I'm your cousin, you know, kind of thing. We grew up together, kind of deal, you know. So um, that's kind of silly. But they don't make that mistake here. They mistake on the other side, because we see this awe and reverence that John the Baptist has for Jesus at one point. But at another point, they meet each other, they embrace, and then they start haggling about something. And and they're, they're talking about John's ministry, and and Jesus is giving him counsel, and John is arguing with Jesus. And it's like he's correcting Jesus, and he's treating Jesus as a mere mortal. Okay. That sense of awe yeah, is completely gone. That really bothered me. I can't imagine yeah. John the Baptist yeah. getting into this particular kind of discussion with Jesus, even though they're familiar, right. on familiar terms, because they, mm-hmm. they're cousins, all right? When John realizes who Jesus is, and he probably had some indications long before the baptism, because Jesus was perfect, never sinned, Mm -hmm. right? This has got to be evident to everybody who grew up with him. So uh, then to have this kind of interaction. But the thing that troubled me the most is the way—so here's a spoiler alert if people haven't watched this. Jesus is working on a sermon. This is what he calls it. He says, I'm working on a sermon. It's a really important sermon. And so I want everybody to get together. I've been a, I'm working on it. And there he is walking in the mists, you know, by the river at the dawn, talking about salt. And well, salt, like, what does salt do? Salt does this, or salt does that. He's, 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 he's uh, what's the word? He's, he's um, practicing with 13. metaphors, trying to figure okay. out how to use the salt imagery of the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt right. of the earth, right? And there he is kind of knocking it around. But he's like he's some, you know, uh, in a freshman homiletics class trying to put together a sermon. That's what it seems like. And in fact, later on, he brings Matthew in. Matthew helps him out to organize the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) And not only that, then he gets the rest of his crowd. He said, we got this big event coming up. We got this big event coming up. This is a really important sermon. No, Sermon on the Mount is an important sermon. But he's treating it like it's a... a, uh, like it's a reality conference coming up. And so he in, in, enlists all of his disciples to promote this thing. we got to find a location. Where's a hill that we can find that we can do this at? They go out and they rent the hill. And then we got to have people managing the crowd. And then how do you get the crowd? Right. Well, you got to make leaflets. They actually have leaflets, parchment leaflets, <laughs> that they're nailing to things and passing out to people in town. Parchment <laughs> is really expensive. Paper right. wasn't like, you know, 500 pieces, 20 pound for three bucks. So this is like this right. radical imposition anachronistically of, of the way we do things now into Jesus' life. And then they build this big platform for him to stand on, and it's a, got a big sheets behind him. And then he walks triumphantly from the back with all of his fans. It's like a rocky introduction as he's moving into the, the ring. <laughs> his, his, the disciples are clapping for him. He's moving in slow motion as he's going past them, waiting to go to the parted curtain that puts him on the stage in front of, you know, Woodstock. Yeah, it, that's the that's kind of the thing end. that bothers me. That yeah. was, uh, and so this is this is this is not uh, this is worse than Christology from below. 
This, yeah. <laughs> this to me was a terrible decision. I was really bothered by that. Now, yeah. I don't know how well, it's going to go. It's almost like, I was going to say, it's almost like the Christology is only below, that there is no uh, divine part. Well, that's actually not true, because they do have him, you know, the, the, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man can forgive sins, you know, okay. uh, all of that, all that, all of that high Christology is built into the dialogue, but it, it's, they add these things. I cannot, I do not think Jesus composed sermons and asked for help, yeah. for ideas. Jesus spoke with authority. He stood up and right. he spoke. When he gave the Bread of Life discourse, he was dealing with issues that were right there in front of him. People's responses, right. and that's John chapter the, six is a huge sermon. Okay, yeah, but the he, way he responded to different people, Pharisees, it wasn't like he, you know, had to work on the answer. His his brilliance was that's immediate. Right. That's right. Even when he was twelve years old, by the way. So this, yeah. to me, um, th- there is a video where the director explains why they did this thing this way, and I, I'm interested to take a look at it. I just realized i got 15 minutes left or so, and i got a couple more calls oh, okay. i got to run to, but I, I'm glad, uh, John, to be able to, um, to just to offer my thoughts here. I, I, I do like certain aspects of it, and I would never discourage anybody from watching it. In fact, I encourage them to do so, because what the, the way the writers put words, Jesus' response to different troublesome circumstances, it's really good. I think it's very in character for a very astute and shrewd character like Jesus was. So I like that writing. I just don't like the way they've lowered him, and they just made him Uh too human. And uh, there is no transcendent quality about this Jesus at all, not really. And that bothers me, okay? So anyway, to each his own on that one. I got to run, okay, yeah, John? I, okay. And because uh, I just I don't want to be sensitive to these other callers, but thank you for asking about the chosen. I got you. Okay, buddy. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's go to Brian in uh, Beaver Creek, Ohio. Hello, Brian. Hey, Greg. How are you tonight? I'm doing good. Uh, we've had a really full almost two hours now here. It's been great. Yeah, I could have uh, commented on every one of the calls tonight, but I'm going to ask you my question. Okay. So I'm, uh, I have been a longtime listener. I've sent uh, in a bunch of questions to hashtag STRask, and uh, we've, oh, we've communicated back and forth. What, What's your handle? What you What's your handle? Uh, well, I've, uh, you've uh, responded to me uh, as Brian Pollock before and as a wine eye major. Um, I was the guy who asked the question about your uh, pastorisms uh, uh, about six weeks ago. Oh, okay, so. okay. Usually people have, you know, like, rutabagas are bad. You know, they have different yeah, funny yeah. names. So, okay. Um, well, go ahead. Okay. What's so on your mind I now? Wanna know, I want to know why we as Christian apologists don't focus more on the fact that um, on Resurrection Sunday, uh-huh. um, Luke tells us that the risen Christ shows up uh uh, and starts talking to Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus. And right. Gives them the best Bible study ever. Right. Would you like to have been there, huh? Well, yes. And then he disappears, and a little while later, that same night, he shows up in the upper room, uh-huh. and he gives the best Bible study ever all over again. Then Luke goes on in Acts chapter 1 to tell us that Jesus spent... 40 days with the disciples explaining to them the kingdom of God, uh-huh. which means, in my mind, he gave them the best Bible study ever. 
Maybe, so we may, well, maybe in this, in your, right. that illustration, he might have been giving them new information. Okay, but certainly but in your first felt, two cases, you're right. Okay, and, well, you know, you would assume that nothing that he would have said during those 40 days would have um, contradicted what was in the Scripture. No, right, and, and it's, it's, it's clear that he was speaking from that. Okay, yeah. got it. And so, okay, and then Paul tells us in his letters that, that um, he had a revelation from uh, Christ himself, and that Christ told him who he was, and we can assume filled in uh, the gaps, because Paul was there. So when we see Peter later in Acts and the other disciples Mm -hmm. stand up and go toe-to-toe with the Jewish religious leaders who they ran from um, weeks before, we tend to think that we tend to only emphasize the fact that they saw the risen Christ, and that was what gave them that boldness. Mm-hmm. And I want to know why we don't emphasize the fact that they not only had the evidence of seeing the risen Christ, but they had the evidence of being taught the scriptures in a way that nobody else had ever had before. Well, Jesus gave them insight and understanding for things that they then put on paper and turned into the New Testament. And that, in my mind, is just as important. It is because that way those men had the tools at their disposal, and we have the the testimony that that's there. Sure. But you don't ever hear that on Sunday morning on Easter. You get to the risen risen tomb, and that's where it starts. And if you get the story of... Um, the guys on the road to Emmaus, it's only if you happen to be going through Luke at any given time. Okay, let me jump in, just because we're really short on time, and I get your point. And, um, in fact, when I teach on this from Acts um, chapter 2, I make the point that it's not just the eyewitness, but that there are two different prophetic um, items in the Old Testament that are fulfilled. Um, and one is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit there at Pentecost from from Joel, and then also the resurrection that they were witnesses to. They make that point, and that is a fulfillment of prophecy for, of David. Okay, and um, so w- w- what we have in the situation of Road to Emmaus, and by the way, Paul himself, when he's with Jews in in a uh, Galatian region and even in uh in the Greek areas of like uh Corinth etc he meets with the Jews and he persuades them from the scriptures and that's because in those cases he was working with an authority they all agreed to so he's going to go to the old testament they don't have new testament old old testament and then show them not only give his own testimony, which he does, about seeing the risen Christ, but showing that this Christ is the Christ based on the Old Testament prophecies as well. So he uses two lines of evidence there with the Jews. The problem you're facing on the road to Emmaus is the, is the disciples scratching their head. They can't figure out what the heck is going on. Here we thought he's the Messiah, then he dies. Now people say they see him again. And so what Jesus did is he explains from the text from the Old Testament text, what is going on, how the Messiah had to die and rise again. And so he used different texts from the Old Testament to clarify what was going on, the death and resurrection of Messiah. We don't know how much he he did, you know, obviously he used the, the law and the prophets, etc. We don't know how much he communicated, but it was, it was that, in that circumstance to help them to see the broader context of what God had been doing 
um, in in uh, in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm just going really quickly here because I want to get on with Brian, I'm rather Tobias in just a minute, who's also in Australia. Um, so so I, I think it's appropriate to use Old Testament uh, verses that relate to the resurrection as evidence of the resurrection, if in fact you can demonstrate a resurrection has taken place. Here's what happened, and here's how is it how, how it was prefigured in the Old Testament. Since the Jews respected the Old Testament, this meant something to them. Nowadays, that doesn't mean things to the people. And so trying to use that as a, a significant source of apologetics isn't going to help us. It does help us as Christians to see the whole picture, and that's the road to Emmaus explanation, I think. Um, and that's the value of that. And uh, but it it doesn't it doesn't mean that we can that maybe our most robust characterization or defense of the resurrection should be based on Old Testament scripture. Uh, you probably have more to say about that, Brian. I got to jump though over to T- Tobias. So thank you for your call. And uh, let me see if I get this right. Tobias in Australia. I'm really sorry. I'm giving you a short shrift. You got like four minutes. So uh, no, but that's I all to... I need. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing okay, buddy. Uh, first of all, before I answer my, ask my question, I'm gonna, I gotta say I'm so ecstatic and happy that it looks like Roe v. Wade is gonna be overturned. And I really hope it is. Alrighty. Yeah, it's pretty exciting news. So yeah, good, 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 uh, thing for the pro-life movement. Oh yeah, uh, okay. My question. Okay, good. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so my question real quickly is, um, can demons or the enemy perform miracles? Can demons? Um, in, in the sense of healing. Yeah. Well, demons can definitely for, perform miracles, all right, because okay. demons have supernatural power. And so the supernatural mm-hmm. power can be manifest in, in a variety of different ways. Now, whether uh, it, it seems to me in principle that that would mean that they can give a healing, okay, in principle, mm-hmm. if they can do miraculous things, and, and we know that, that this, this case we have it, you know, humans that are possessed by demons have superhuman strength, for example, in the New Testament. Um, or the demons go into the crowd of swine and the swine all run into the lake and, and, uh, and are drowned, whatever, Sea of Galilee. So we know that there can be supernatural manifestations there. And um, uh, uh, now, can the manifestation be an, a, a healing? I, I don't know why it wouldn't be possible, okay? Um, remember that Jesus warned in Matthew 24, that the uh, that false messiahs in Christ will rise up and do signs and wonders that could mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now, I think his point is the elect won't be misled, but it's going to be really compelling stuff. So the non-elect will hey. be. The non, non-church, the non-Christians will be misled. So I, I, this hey. is a variety of different supernatural manifestations. The book of Revelation seems to indicate powerful manifestations from from uh, the beast and the prophets, whatever, depending how you read that. But uh, the, on, on, in general, I don't see any reason why we should not think that demonic powers are capable of doing miraculous things, even in principle, even healings. So w- what's your view on yeah, that? Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've been sort of um, contemplating this uh, question and um, it really came from a, a discussion I had, and you, you get skeptics who will challenge uh, where the healings take place. Or, and it comes from a study that was done, you might be familiar with it, where they were trying to, skeptics were trying to see, is there actual healing that happens in prayer? 
And the study was actually done with people who didn't actually believe in miracles. There was a, 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 an organization, they're not Christian, but they called themselves Christians, uh-huh. but none of them actually believed in the healing. And they found that people weren't getting healed. And they had um, another case where non-religious people would pray, that have religious people pray, um, and they would see would the religious people actually, would their prayers be answered by God? And when I had a discussion with a friend, uh, so the, the objection was, well, okay, so, you know, you, you say that there's miracles that happen, you know, because your God allows the miracles, Jesus is the only one that's healed, but what about all these other religions where miracles are apparently happening? So well, you've yeah, answered my uh, question, and I really appreciate your time. Yeah, and I, it's, I think that's a possible answer there, but it, it isn't just a supernatural manifestation, because we all acknowledge that even the enemy can manifest himself in supernatural ways, okay? There's more to yeah. it than that and in, in making our case, but certainly miracles are attesting miracles. That's the way the New Testament treats them, are huge in the New Testament um, witness. And that's why John says at the end of the Gospel, of John, uh, many other things, miracles Jesus performed, but these I've recorded here, the seven or so that are in the Gospel of John, in order that you might believe. So there was something about the quality of Jesus' miracles, not just a supernatural act, but the quality and the circumstances and the claims of Jesus that brought dr- dramatic verification to his office as uh, as Messiah. So. I, I um, uh, you know, a lot more could be said about this, uh, Tobias, but uh, I'm up against the clock right now. I was glad to squeeze you in in the last four minutes, and I think we did pretty good in four minutes. So there's my music, and thank you for your call, Tobias. And, uh, oh, that was a fast hour, wasn't it? <laughs> Blitz by Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.